Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm Isaac. Um, even though it could happen this episode, who knows? <laughs> this could be this could be the one. I mean, the, the more episodes we record without CJ, uh, <laughs> it could just be stumbling for closer and closer to the edge. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I you know, I never thought this day would come where I was uh, defending a Hauerwas <laughs> Will Willman article. I know on this podcast, the irony is thick. I, I mean, I Will Willimon. He's yeah. He there's one book of his that I really, I really appreciate. But uh, but yeah, for the most part, I, I I was I was gonna I was gonna save that for later. Actually, after you got your argument going, but I'm glad you acknowledged it right away. No, I mean, <laughs> look, okay, lifelong Methodist here. I have made all the Will Willimon critiques, but let's just like break it down for folks. This. This week, there was an article in the Christian Century, a magazine, online periodical. There was a conversation between Will Willimon and Stanley Hauerwas called The Dangers of Providing Pastoral Care. And if you don't know who Will Willimon and Stanley Hauerwas are, basically, Will Willimon is a bishop in the United Methodist Church. He was the longtime dean of Duke Chapel. While he was there, he wrote a book with Stanley Hauerwas, who was a Christian ethicist and famous theologian at Duke for a long time, but now retired. He um, They wrote a book together called Resident Aliens, which was super influential for pastors in the church. Basically challenging Christian nationalism. But they also, you know, have... have Will Willimon writes a book like every four months. Uh, he just craps them out on any topic and every topic. So, you know, there's a complicated legacy with Hauerwas. He was, like I said, very influential in challenging the prominence of Christian nationalism, especially in the 90s and the early 2000s. He also very, you know, uh, was a lifelong friend of John Howard Yoder. Uh, did not, you know, things have come to light about the role he played in the abuse allegations and, you know, the abuse that. John Howard Yoder committed over decades of time. Howard Ross's role in kind of not taking it seriously enough. All of that is packed up into the baggage of, of his legacy. He's also a friend, was lifelong friends with John Vanier, who we just found out also was a lifelong abuser. So yeah, he's he really uh there's a lot going on with Howard Ross and the people that he associated himself with and the sort of pacifism that was at the heart of not only his ethics, but the ethics of Yoder and Vanier, who ended up being people who were sexually abusing others. Um, and so, and then on top of that, there have been a lot of really, really good critiques of uh, Hauerwas and other folks like Willem, Willeman and the whole sort of post-liberal school by Black scholars and queer scholars just for how they fail to account for race, how their critiques of liberalism and, mo- and modernity like are right up to the point where they fail to include race. And then that their prescription for solving those problems also, again, aren't material enough, don't take into account the problems of racism. So they're, you know, they, they've both played a pretty influential role and yet um, the tide has kind of turned on them significantly in the last uh, 15 years or so, I would say, in the academy and sort of in the public mind. Anything to add there, Brian? Yeah, I, just, I think if, you, if you're thinking, 
I don't know what the hell Isaac just talked about. <laughs> the, the correlation I would make to them is they are kind of the Jonathan Franzen of the theology world in some ways, where if you wanted two people to have a conversation about this topic that you also wanted to get everybody online fired up about it, you pro- there are probably not two other people that you would pick but besides these guys. And I think the Jonathan Franzen kind is kind of a little bit of a joke where it's like two people that arguably, or you, may, you might not even be able to argue, were important theologically. Like, as you said, but, and, and have some kind of, it's not like these are two hack. Well, you, I guess you could argue one of them might be a hack, but, uh, but they, they've, they've had an importance. And when stuff comes up about them, I think a lot of times people are ready to go. <laughs> like just when things come up, they're just ready to go. Like they, this is put on a tee for a lot of people online. And, and we saw that when this article kind of dropped, people were, uh, People had a lot to say. So, uh, and it's, it's the same thing when whenever Jonathan Franzen, who I don't care for really at all, but anytime he releases a book, people are like, oh, he sucks. And it's like, well, he doesn't suck. I mean, he's a good writer, but it's like, I, but your critiques are valid. It's like, we, sometimes I think we mess up, we, we confuse the critique with the, uh, with, with the feeling a little bit. So, um, but yeah, but everything you said, I think is, is spot on. So, uh, and I think it did prime the pump a little bit for, for, for the reaction to this. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's just like, okay, these two people talking together. I mean, I think there are a couple of things about the article that just first off, the, the editors of Christian Century should have said like, this is probably not the way to do it. The first thing is <laughs> yes. that this is like, this is formatted as a dialogue, yeah. like them talking back and forth. It's not something they wrote down. And I think this is one of the dangers even of a podcast is that it's two people who are very familiar with each other, who have share a lot of the similar assumptions that they don't feel they need to unpack in conversation with one another, just talking. And so they're very comfortable and they say things that, first of all, like I said, they don't see the necessity of unpacking because they agree with each other. But also they say things that, because they're comfortable in the moment, strike the wrong note and uh, at least a few times in the article, to say yeah. the least. And there's a, I think there's a subtext, like a theological subtext to a couple of the things that they're talking about. Like, And we'll get to it, but the part that I know a lot of people... Um, were upset about were the things about like, you know, the bourgeois, uh, I, I can't remember how they put it, but we'll, we'll get to it. But the bourgeois kind of like struggles that people are going through in the church. And I know that rubbed people the wrong way, but you know, there, there's a subtext like, and we'll, we can talk about it when we get there. But I think there's also like a theological subtext that's happening for some of this stuff that it's probably rooted in that, the, the post-liberal thing, like you were mentioning, but it's, they just don't, they just don't explain it. You know, they don't explain it like they would in an academic article, maybe. But, you know, and I might be being a little too gracious uh, on that part. But I think, because I think there are things that they get right and I, that I agreed with. And there are other things where I'm just like, mm. yeah, it's like, read the room, bros. <laughs> so. Well, uh, that's funny that this, the part about them sort of critiquing bourgeois, white, mainline churches, I think is the part where they're Hitting the nail on the head the hardest. So I don't. I don't think they're wrong. I, I think no. that I think that there's a there's a lack of there's a lack of I don't know if it's not care because <laughs> that's not the word that that's not going to help me in this. But I, I just think that they. I think coming out of a pandemic, there's there's some there's some feeling that there's a there's a you know they're they're kind of holding us up to this ethic. I think that's like way high above stuff that's happening sometimes in the pew. And I I think it's I think it's not necessarily fair to say that everything like I think there are plenty of people in the white mainline church who have actual problems that do require pastoral care and I think they're elevating it a little bit and trying to set it up against you know what the, how the church how we want and we talk about this all the time on the podcast what we want the church to be and how that we think the church should act and kind of uh, participate in the world versus 
I don't have meaning in my life or whatever. And I think that they're setting up slight a slight unfair, I think, comparison there was my read on it. But Yeah, I think we can get into it. Uh, why don't we go ahead and just break down the article? Because I think we're... Uh... We we need to bring the audience all the way yeah. into the text instead of kind of hovering over it the way we are with reactions. So I think you know we because it's short and because of the nature of it, it's not too hard. Like it's not difficult for us to just get like right into it on a deep level. It it starts out with Willimon and Hauerwas just saying you know when they entered ministry. Around the same time in the 1960s and 70s, they weren't really prepared for the reality on the ground in white mainline churches. You know, Willman says, I thought when I headed back to South Carolina, Methodism, I thought I was entering a war. Some of the young pastors who had talked me into ministry were run out of the church before I got to join them. I was immature and didn't know much about pastoral ministry, but I knew that you could get hurt doing it. I mean, anybody that. I mean, anybody that doesn't know that that's true uh, hasn't done ministry in any context whatsoever. Yes. (laughs) So there's nothing wrong with this at the start. (laughs) Basically, what he's saying is describes the, I think, the uh, reality for 99% of seminarians who are going into local church ministry. You go out thinking like, I'm going to challenge folks and that's what they want. And I'm going to push boundaries and try to like get them out of their comfort zone. And you quickly find that that's, not only not what they want, it's not what your bosses want you to do either. And I think that that's actually at the crux of the entire article right there. The idea of like, and they even like, they're they're even like, I think, you know, Vanderbilt is maybe not unique in this, but being in Nashville, you know, one of the more, I mean, can you call them Nashville progressive? I don't know, but it's at least it has progressive elements to it in Tennessee. And then a lot of the people there were local and they were going out to churches in Jackson or wherever, right? Uh, Friendsville, mm-hmm. <laughs> wherever it might be. Um, and <laughs> sorry, I just did that to amuse myself. But it's like they might end up there. And so there was an inherent thing of like, well, you can't teach them or you can't preach this. You're going to learn it. But you can't preach it. And so I think that that to me was at the, is that kind of at the crux of what, what the argument is, is this idea of separating the, the truth telling, you know, that you learn in divinity school, perhaps, hopefully, with the fact when you get there that you suddenly you go from truth telling prophetic mode to maintaining a job and trying to keep a career mode. And I, I don't know, that's, that's I, I read that kind of as the undercurrent for the whole article. Yeah, 100%. He's talking about the culture of, you know, he know the one he knows best is the United Methodist Church. Same with Hauerwas, but Hauerwas has also been an Episcopalian for like twenty years at this point. But that dynamic exists at every at every seminary. And, you know, and at Duke, you're in Durham, um, very progressive place, but you get sent out to do field education in BFE, North Carolina. So everybody. You know, when we would come back in to our little like weekly groups talking about field education, it was like this person said X racist thing or X homophobic thing or X like misogynistic thing. And it's like, and basically it was this constant battle of like all day long in class, I'm being told how to like do these sort of suspicious readings, you know, hermeneutics of suspicion and like break down and reveal like oppression in these texts. And then when I go out and like share that with folks, they hate it because, you know, in in that specific context, you don't really have a relationship. Like you're an intern 
You have no authority in the eyes of these folks. You barely know them. You're generally from a very different generation than them. And there's a lot of frustration in that early on that those things just don't work. So, um, you know, the next thing he says is, you know, Williman did serve as a bishop for four years in the Northern Alabama Conference. And he says, I became troubled that many contemporary pastors aspired only to be obsequious pastoral caregivers and handholders. The pastor as the empathetic helping healer who goes for the low-hanging fruit by encouraging people to display and then lick their wounds. Now, I completely agree with this because I see it every single day in the way my colleagues preach and post and approach difficult justice issues. He's 100% right. I also think that it's not surprising that this is probably the first place where a lot of people jumped off the bus with this article because of the exact language he used. So how did this strike you, Brian, when you read it? Well, and I read it through the first paragraph of that same quote, which is, he says, young and reckless, accustomed to unsafe behavior. Don't really know what that means. But anyway, I was unintimidated, even invigorated by Luther's dictum that the sermon is like the surgeon's scalpel. And I was like, hell yeah, let's go. Like, and because that goes back to like that idea of like the prophetic. And, and I know you can, prophetic gets overused, but I think that the role of, especially in preaching, like the role of proclamation uh, should be that, right? It should, like if, if every single reading, like for me in the revised common lectionary tells me the exact same story and props up the same thing, like, hey, we're doing a building campaign. I mean, a, a capital campaign. Campaign. Guess what uh, this week's scripture is about? Building capital. It's like, no. Like, like that's actually one of the things that I really love about the, the lectionary is the fact that it does, it forces you to contend with those different things. So I totally agree. I think you're right that the idea of, because of, I don't think this means that a pastor can't, and tell me if you, if you disagree with this, I don't think this means that the pastor isn't or shouldn't be a caregiver or at times a handholder. Um, but he's, tra- he's he's setting up the point that you lose, you're losing that scalpel edge of being able to call people on, I guess, like you said, like justice issues, whatever it is, when you turn your ministry only into that. Is that how you're reading it? One, 100%. And I think that, you know, I think there's also something that he doesn't say that, I mean, it comes out a little bit later in the article, but I'll go ahead and bring it up now. I think that when you're in... The amount of time you're spent being trained in pastoral care and seminary is next to zero. I would characterize it as less than 1% of what I was taught or discussed in seminary at Duke. Mm. Because the emphasis is on theological understanding, recovery of the tradition of the church, how important that is for like, you know, on the ground ministry, and then also like bringing in these contemporary justice issues and how that's relevant. Like, that is not like that is 99% of seminary education right now. And then suddenly you get out into the reality of the church and you can't do that. And instead, what people want, or you can, but you'll just get moved and you know, ostracized and shuffled out. But instead, what people want is for you to basically be a type of like counselor for them. And you're not, first of all, you're not trained for it at all. I think that part of the part of the dissonance that he's trying to describe that I certainly experience and I know my colleagues do is that suddenly you're being asked for some to do something that seminary 100% is not meant to do. Mm. And so I think that's another that's another issue here when we're talking about the role of a pastor like we're not trained as counselors. And also, you know, there's a complicated 
discussion to be had about the role of chaplains in hospitals is maybe a like a follow-up pod to to kind of go into that more with some folks we've had on who who are have been trained as hospital chaplains but that is not what seminary trains you to be as a pastor yeah and it's not what you know most of our churches when you read what ordained ministry looks like describes as the ministry of a pastor. So go ahead, I'll cut well, you off. No, I, I, I broke in, but I think, I think you're right. And I think that like, even when you take the pastoral care, class, pastoral care classes, I was thinking back of the ones I took. Like I took one on like the uh, pastoral care of death and dying, but it was all theology. Like it, it wasn't about like, like praxis, right? It was about the theology of like the theology of what it means to die and like theodicy, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think that there might be I think there might be a little bit of like with this, especially like a little bit of intent upon going into seminary. And I think you and I probably have the, had the same intent of going and going to seminary, right? Or the same intent of ministry, which is what we're articulating. But I think there are people that have, I actually, I know because I've met them <laughs> that have no use for like theology, right? Or like thinking theologically. And the reason for being pastor is to do the handholding stuff. Uh, that That's why they're getting ordained. That's why they're kind of going into that role. Um, I think that, I think that on either side, there's probably a little bit of like a challenge that needs to be made of like, I've been around enough pastors who are, uh, and priests especially, who are just like totally intellectual and have no other skill whatsoever. It's not in preaching, it's not anything. Um, And so they could use a little bit of like that, maybe that hand-holding bedside manner. And then I think there are a lot of clergy out there who are really good at walking into a room and patting hands and crying with somebody, but couldn't think their way, you know, theologically out of of the Book of Common Prayer or whatever it is. Uh, Probably have to cut that. Uh, (laughs) But but it's like, and, and... I, I just think I, I'm wondering if there's intent, you know, there's an, a question of intent there that you and I read this and we are coming at it from the same point of view that the that the role of clergy is to kind of be that that abr- not abrasive, but that kind of like maybe a, a little bit of an irritant to the comfort of, you know, uh, a world that quite easily can turn a blind eye to injustice. I don't know. Well, I let, let's keep going because there yeah. there's more here to kind of give nuance to this. But, you know, so far, I think we're on the same page. I mean, so Haros goes on to say, the pastor is supposed to be a truth teller who helps the baptized grow up and survive as Christians. Pastoral care is supposed to be the work yes. of the whole church. And that now, right there, I'm down for that. Those yeah. two senses right there, that's when I was like, I, I agree. And, and, and you see this, I, we talk about this all the time, like either on the pod or just in general, is the idea of like the baptized grow up and survive as Christians. Like we just, we, the church does a shitty job of that. We, we have no expectations of people when it comes to discipleship a lot of times, or we allow people to kind of um, to turn it into this insular thing where all it is like, well, I just like to spend quiet time on the mountain. It's like, well, that's fine, but guess what? That ain't it. That There's more to it than that. And the, the, this is where I think the, the part of like the challenge of the pastor is like the pastor having to have the uh, the the um, gumption, if you will, to to challenge people into that role, as opposed to either a tank, taking it on all themselves because they have that kind of a personality that I don't want to call it a martyr complex, but they have this personality where they feel like they have to do all of this stuff and they don't want to give away the pastoral care. They don't mm-hmm. want to see the uh, other people doing something that they think is the role of clergy. Um, but the idea of like that is like. That if you said this was the mission of the church right here, the pastor is supposed to be a truth teller who helps the baptized grow up and survive as Christians. And then pastoral care is the work of the entire church. 
I'm in. That's it. Like, that's it to me. That's mutual aid. That's everything. All right, let's, let's go. Who said that? Howard Moss? All right, yeah, Here's I'm down. Moss, yeah. <laughs> but, well, but here's the thing. So, I mean, let me, you know, for folks who have never been a pastor, which by the way... Like, like me. <laughs> sorry to all the people commenting on who are in seminary or like a fucking doctoral program who have never been a local pastor of a church. Like, yes. please just <laughs> complaining about this article. Like, I don't know. This one's just not for you. You're not the audience here. Um, oh, and you certainly are not an expert on what the dynamics of congregations are. But let me just give you an example. So I'll take you in. I've been the pastor of a church very recently uh, where the expectation was that anytime someone like had a runny nose, not only would I... And they had to go to the hospital. Not only would I go with them but also that I would sit there with them for hours at a time until they were released, that I would like, if they had to go back, that I would accompany them again, that if they were having surgery, that I would sit in the waiting room like I was a member of their family until the surgery was completed. Like I would go, you know, anytime someone was not feeling well, the expectation was if they needed to like go to the hospital that I would be there accompanying them because they needed emotional support, I guess. But here's the reality. I was in a congregation of about 80 people, 75% of whom were over the age of 70. Do you know how many times people over the age of 70 go to the hospital in like in a year or even in a month in the United States of America? (laughs) Basically... But that's the thing though. They had become accustomed to that because they had a series of pastors who were totally fine meeting that expectation and making that their entire job. They just made people feel satisfied. They never challenged them from the pulpit. They were basically their friend. And that, you know, and guess what? When you're doing that, it can be a pretty cushy job. You get a free house. You make an like an okay salary, not a great one, but you know, you basically if you like just go in and you're like, I'm just going to make these people happy, then it's not really that demanding of a job, except unless you hate doing that stuff, and then it's you know terrible. But like I'm just saying, like part of the reason why there are so many folks who get mad about this article is because Howard Ross and Williman are telling them the truth about their very cushy and very not demanding role mm. in pastoral ministry. And, and in, this to me, this describes like 75% of the pastors in my area. This is exactly what they do. Yeah. Well, and and there's a little bit of like chicken and egg stuff here that I'm, I'm kind of struggling with is like, you know, when you describe like somebody showing up at the hospital, um, it's like, well, I can see that. Like I can see the, 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 the importance of that, of a role. Of for clergy in that, I think the important part when you say when it turns into your whole job, there's a couple things there that worry me. Is and this is one of the reasons why I never got ordained in the Methodist Church is because I did not see myself in that kind of role. Um, and so I, I think there's an assumption that a calling into, into like ordained ministry, 
you necessarily have to have that says 75% of your calling. So what if you don't? There's there's a lot of stuff wrong with that, in my opinion. And one is the fact that it just, it, it it's it's what this article is talking about, but it also pulls some of that away from people who might not be called to be ordained ministers, but might be called to be in a hand-holding ministry. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with a hand-holding ministry, right? Like, I think if if like Stephen ministry is a good example of that, of people where the, the people in the church are taking care of themselves. Because a lot of this too is based in like a savior complex. I don't know if yes. you've ever met a clergy person that has a savior yes. complex. <laughs> but there's a lot of this of like, I want to make sure that when I leave, I, I don't know if this would ever be stated in this way, but it feels that way sometimes that the next person like has to kind of like level up a little bit more to get where I had been. And, to, and, to, and so it creates clergy and, and, and I think lay, lay ministry workers too, who have no sense of, of uh, how to, uh, despite what they say in this article later on, no sense of how to take care of themselves, no sense yes. of how to develop their own calling, and no yes. sense of how to challenge themselves in ministry. And guess what? That's why people burn out and end up leaving. Um, you know, I'm well, coming at this from... Go ahead. No, I, I'm just saying so many pastors get into the business because they need to be needed. You know, you can see it in seminary. There are people there. I think we said this in the episode with Indira about religious trauma and spiritual trauma. There are folks who go to seminary to try to like work out their emotional problems when they really should just go to therapy. Like there are, yeah, yeah. Like it was, it was a tweet. It was you know, do, men will really be out here going to get whole MDiv, but whole yeah. ass MDiv before instead of going to seminary. Yeah. Yes, one hundred percent. I mean, I remember seeing a person. I mean, one of one of the most annoying people I went to seminary with, like broken down in tears in our third year begging a professor to like tell this person what to believe because all they felt like is that they had been like completely deconstructed and now they didn't know who they were. Like, yo, that person should not then go into the ministry. Yeah. Because what will happen is they will be defined by the way their congregation feels about them. And you know, I was in a I was in a room with a person who a a colleague who was in their uh in early in ministry, just like me, we had this sort of accountability group. And, you know, this person said, I talking about a, a congregation member that was problematic and giving this person a lot of trouble and just sort of constantly like being, you know, a thorn in their side. And this person was like, you know, I just like, I feel like my calling in this church is to help this one person solve their um, emotional trauma and then like everything will be okay. And I just said to this person, that's not your job. Yeah. <laughs> like that's not your job. As, as a pastor, you're not trained and you're not asked or you shouldn't be asked to help people solve their emotional trauma. It's just not a role that you are qualified to fulfill. And secondly, you're not Jesus. Right. I was just going to say, it's a fundamental lack of trust uh, in God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus. Let's just put that out there too. It's, it's like that. I mean, and I one time got I one time got called out by a very, very evangelical youth leader for saying, and he said something. He's like, Brian, they don't, these kids don't, you don't need to be friends with these kids. And he was mostly right. Uh, but he said, he's like, he's like, they got one savior and you ain't it or something like that. And I was just like, I don't like you telling me this right now, but it's like, damn, you're actually kind of true. And it, and that framed a lot of how I did youth ministry moving forward was the idea of just like, I can't operate in that because not only is it just theologically bananas, but like, let's think about it from just a term of, I want to do this for a long time. You're never going to, like, that's, that's a three year and out kind of thing. End up working as a barista yes. or something, which there's nothing wrong with that. But when you start talking about burnout and you start talking about, um, you know, clergy who have 
uh, made uh, serious kind of had serious mistakes in their career. I, a lot of it comes from that that sense of 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 there's a lack of boundaries there that I think very quickly can become a a down you know a, a, a slide down into into worse behavior. So well and. And just to you know, put a bow on this point, that person's not a pastor anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> they didn't make it through the ordination process because the church was like, "You're not doing this in a healthy way." Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. That's that. And see, this Dan, this is you. You meet. This might be the conversation that convinces me about the institutional church <laughs> that maybe clergy <laughs> has to figure out a way to operate outside of the church. So, uh, all right, let's just keep going and see see where I where I land. <laughs> Well, I mean, so then we get into the whole, you know, pastoral care has become obsessed with the personal wounds of people in advanced industrial societies who discovered that their lives lack meaning. Like, yeah, that's true. I I don't think that, you know, I don't think that this article does a good job of like helping people understand why that is or even really digging much deeper into it. But well, you mentioned it, dis- you mentioned it earlier, yeah. like lack of like a material kind of like connection or yeah. any kind of like analysis for material, like class, stuff like that. But well, I wonder here, Brian, it, you know, there is a book that does that and maybe you can talk about it. I haven't read it in a long time, but I think you did recently. It's called Pastoral Care and Oh yeah. The Age of Neoliberalism. <laughs> Do you want to I was like, shit, what book is he talking about? I thought you were I thought you were queuing me up for one of my books and I was like, I didn't write a book like this. What are you talking about? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's a book by Bruce Rogers Vaughn who um I don't know if he's I think he's actually getting ready to leave Vanderbilt or retire something, but has been at Vanderbilt Divinity School for a long time and the, kind of the central point of this book is that it's called Caring for in a neoliberal age. One of the best books I've literally ever written, uh, like theological books that I've ever read. Um, and it's essentially the idea that neoliberalism is this power, this thing that's happening that is trying to deconstruct collectives and force a narrative on us that our individual kind of problems, pains, um, uh, strengths is all that really matters. And so we have to operate from that place at all times. Um, and how the church, and specifically how clergy, should not be uh, buying into that. And that, that's a really basic level. The book's like 200 and some pages long. Uh, highly recommended. Uh, and, and when you're talking about like a class analysis or analysis of, of like how, why suffering happens in the world or how capitalism kind of slowly kind of seeps into all of these different conversations and how this kind of like narcissistic like lack of meaning in your life, he ties all of that together into this. So it's it's... I don't know, the, the, the takeaway that I always kind of bring from that book is that idea of individually, like we we have been kind of forced in this idea that individuals are are the height of and of um, our concern, right? And so it goes back to that that kind of thing that you were just saying about this idea of a pastor who wants to take care of one person's emotional trauma, when instead, my read on that would be. I think that that has a place in pastoral ministry, but I think if you are not connecting that also to the larger systemic issues that are creating this lack of meeting and creating these kind of like crises, uh, then you're not you're not doing your role. You're not kind of living into your your ordination vows already, or even your baptismal vows. I would say. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of a basic high level of that book. Highly recommended. I, I actually reached out to him to try to get him on the pod. Have not heard back yet, uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna do it again because now I'm I'm psyched. He, that that book is a, kind of it's a it's a it's a game changer for a lot of people when they read it. I would love to have him on. Um, Bruce, we're putting up the bat signal to 
<laughs> Hopefully you catch it. We really need you. We need you to come in and help round out this conversation with a good material analysis. Because I think, again, this is a failure of the format of this article because yeah. right there, you know, the, the thesis of that book is basically assumed by Yes. It's common knowledge by Howard Watson a sentence. Well, and it's like these two sentences right here. Enjoy your narcissism, having your narcissism defeated by being drawn into the church's eschatological mission to witness to the Christ's cross and resurrection. That's care worthy of the name Christian. And like, I think if you sit with that for a little bit, it's hard to argue against that. Like, it's hard to argue against that. But I think when you read that, especially after the thing about, uh, I think there, I think that can easily be read as like having a lack of respect for the people in the pews. Um, and I don't, I don't think that's what this is doing. I know that's some of the critique that's been online, but I think that, I think there's a way of saying, yes, what you're feeling has value. Like, and we should, we should talk about why you're feeling that way. But then it's, it's not just like, that's like a bandaid on top of a massive wound, right? Like it's not actually fixing the problem that's creating those, those feelings and those senses, that sense of uh, narcissism or like, I don't know, like just depression, just general, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. But like, I, I think it's like, it's not actually addressing the stuff that it thinks it's addressing. It's addressing a symptom and maybe not the, the actual problem. So. Well, let me, let me try to give an example because one of the things I was struck by in my first couple of years of, of pastoral ministry in um, a rural conservative church was how during the prayers of the people every week, there were every, all the prayer requests were about people who were sick. People who were sick, constantly in the hospital, somebody new had cancer, somebody else had, you know, a broken hip. Like, and, you know, one time I just pointed out in a sermon, I was like, do y'all realize that every time we pray, we only pray about one thing, which is the fact that as a nation, we don't have a functioning healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And I was like, we have prayer requests in this room that stem from this person has cancer because of environmental degradation by corporations in our area, or this person has cancer because of shitty labor conditions in the, in the industry that they worked in that led them to inhale poisonous chemicals for 30 years. Or this person fell and broke their hip because they have to push themselves beyond their physical limits to be able to live because they can't like they didn't um, retire with enough money to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's like, so it, I think that part of it is there's this dissatisfaction emotionally that people feel and they're naming it, but they're not hearing what they're naming. Well, yeah, they're the, just I, saying, yes. Yeah. Um, sorry. You got me. This is this is exactly it, and this is this ties back into the uh, caring for souls in the neoliberal age. They're naming, yeah. like I said, they're naming the symptoms. They're not naming the problem, right? They're not seeing right. the overarching problem. And I think that this is again where there's a lack of analysis here. And damn, this might be the one that gets us canceled. Uh, <laughs> but I think that there's a, a part of the outrage on this is the fact that you're not saying you might be saying this, but I'm. I, I would. I would suggest that it's not. You're not saying that we shouldn't pray for people that have cancer, but we should connect those dots in order to say, hey, guess what? The calling of the church and my calling as a pastor says that I'm going to. I, I will sit in the room with you, and I will be like ministry of presence when you when you find out that news. But I'm also going to march in a in you know in a in a. Um, uh, in a protest that's protesting unfair labor conditions in among coal miners or something like that, because those two damn things are connected. Uh, damn, you got yeah. me all fired up. I haven't even drank a monster uh, energy drink today and I'm all, I'm all worked up now, but I think that like connecting those two things, I don't think that kind of connection was found in a lot of the outrage or kind of the, the concern that this article brought up. I think that, well, but 
If you read it one way, I think you can read it one way and say they don't care about the people in the pews, but I don't think that that's what they're saying at all. No, this is not... I mean, all right. I think that this conversation is no longer really about the piece. It's just about the topic that the piece brings up. Because I I don't give a fuck about defending these two people. They don't need us to do it. <laughs> I, just, I was going to see how long it would take us to, for you to turn the corner on that. Like, okay, we don't have to defend these guys anymore. Well, so. we don't. Yeah. But I think that... Well, I, I am going to say one more thing about it. But what we're really talking about here is that this article raises a really important problem. And I, you know, it's about a very specific culture of pastoral care, not about pastoral care in general. I mean, there was a great piece for folks who want an alternative to this that um, I'm opening the title to now, written by Malkia Devich Cyril, a Black activist, who wrote a piece for the uh, the site in these times called Grief Belongs in Social Movements. Can we embrace it? And, you know, that is a perfect... That article is a, does a perfect job of talking about how, like, the sort of personal care that people need um, that comes from the systematic oppression in our, in our nation belongs in the justice work of fixing those big problems, but where you connect the individual need to the larger society and find solutions and processes of, you know, emotional healing collectively. But what, you know, the thing you said about like, oh yeah, we, we want to pray for someone and then go march. That's exactly what you're not allowed to do in mainline churches, specifically white mainline churches. You know, they, in seminary, they tell you, you got to build trust. You got to show them that they love you, that you love them. And you do it by, this is the common wisdom, going and visiting them in the hospital or at home or whatever else. And then when you build enough trust, when you go out and challenge them, they'll receive it well. It doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. The answer is no, because what you're really doing, what the, what the expectation is, is that you know, for most of the folks who are in the church, and let's be honest about what generation they're from, they're old. You know, the average age in the United Methodist Church is 59 years old. They have lived, you know, 59 years in a culture of church that tells them the only thing that matters is their personal problems. And as soon as you challenge their assumptions and you're not there making them feel good like you are at their bedside, it's over. Mm-hmm. It's over. Well, I'm wondering, yeah, I mean, I... I think that there's, I think you're right about the, I mean, the fact is that the building of that trust, I think, is one of those myths that gets kind of uh, kicked down the road until, and it's just never, I mean, maybe it does come true for some people, who knows, but I, I, I think that there, I think there's, I guess, on what I'm trying to say is I think there is a sense of, I think you can build trust. And, and I'm coming at this from a teenager point of view in some ways. And I think like when you're working with teenagers and doing this kind of stuff, it's a whole lot easier than with adults because they're just more oh, open. Yes, because um, they know what they don't know. Yeah. And, and so, I, th- so I, I'm, I'm, I can't speak to the adult side as much. But like, I mean, let's just flip it. One of the reasons why I like writing young adult books is because I feel like I can have an opportunity to get a, um, a kid to see the possibility or imagine a different possibility in something that I can't get an adult to do. And so I think that that's, I think it's possible, I guess, I guess, but I don't think it's common. I don't think that somebody who comes in 
Um, I think it's like the kind of thing, what it sounds like is just like a bad Oscar movie where, you know, a pastor comes in and, and is like, well, now we're all pro, we're, we're affirming and a reconciling congregation. And then the next two hours is just about how this, this community comes together to become, and I just don't, you just don't see that very often. Um, I, I don't know. I guess what I'm, what I'm trying, I guess what I'm trying to circle is I think that in this article, I think that they just, I, I just think that they miss yeah, I just think they missed the mark a couple times with trying to t- tie those two things together. And what we're actually talking about is what actually I think the article is about. <laughs> How's that for some arrogance? Um, <laughs> Will Wilmon and Stanley Hauerwas, feel free to come on and let us let you, let you know where you missed up on this one. So, I mean, <laughs> the pandemic is a perfect example of exactly what they're discussing. You know, anybody who was a pastor during the last year had to deal with people's complete detachment from reality about COVID. And Willeman says that, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, you said to me, I feel sorry for pastors who attempt to care for people who think dying is optional and injustice inflicted upon them by bad luck. That describes older, wealthy white people who have been comfortable, have very rarely ever had anything that they didn't want or need. Like they could, you know, as Willeman says, they could go swipe a credit card and solve all of their basic needs in an instant. Now, and their only problem is their dissatisfaction with like the meaninglessness of their lives. You know, we talked about this so many times on the podcast. White supremacy kills white people too. Like mm. it's just a slower process. Like it kills your soul to be like completely and wholly bought out to white supremacy. And and I think that part of what the online reaction is that, you know, young people have a very different view of the church. I think especially on Twitter, they imagine the church is something that it's not. But the reality is, is that the average churchgoer in America is like a 50-year-old white dude and his wife. And they, you know, he owns a freaking used car dealership and she like believes in QAnon and Reiki healing or something. (laughs) Like it's just like, that is the average church member. It's not, you know... It's not poor white people. It's not certainly not um, young people of any ethnicity or or race or sexual identity. It's like it's the nuclear family. Like this is the very end of the church as made in the image of the white nuclear family, and it's going to go out that way because it's perfectly fine to never have that challenge and to be like completely destroy itself worshiping its own image. Well, and, and that's what they're talking about here. And yeah. I, I just don't think they, they just don't delve into it, but that's what I'm reading. Yeah. And I think, I think that I would, I would put a little bit of nuance on the, and granted, I'm in a completely unique church situation, perhaps the healthiest yes. um, church that I've ever been in um, <laughs> as far as leadership and people that go there. And so I, I have a little bit of a, pie in the sky um, view of church at the moment. But I think that I think one of the things that I think is interesting is like coming into the pandemic and maybe we're not even coming out of it now from we just got an updated mask mandate here in in St. Paul, Minnesota. So we got to start wearing masks again, which is fine. Um, But (laughs) neither here nor there. Anyway, but I think that like one of the things is like the first time of kind of having like your existential, like the idea, like they they put it as like that they don't believe they have, they're going to die. Right. And I think that that is true for a lot of people. And I think there's a way of thinking that from a very 
from like an affluence side. And then I think there's a way of looking at it, which is really the same thing from kind of a, we live in the United States, even if even, you know, some of the poorest among us are still not, right? And to me, like, I think that there is work during the pandemic of helping people reckon with that idea. Like I, I look at the priest that I work with, who is a wonderful person and just like, really good at this kind of stuff. She is really good at balancing the pastoral and the prophetic and challenging people when they need to be challenged. And a lot of her, I mean, and it's, it's, I think it's been really hard on her is trying to manage all of that expectation of like, how do we, like you said, my life has no meaning or I could have died. Like I'm going through this. So I'm getting all these damn tattoos. It's because I came out of this pandemic and I'm just like, well, I'm not waiting. Like, I'm not, you know, who knows what's going to happen next? And so I think that there is like, to me, there's a give there's a both and there of, of being able to like, some of that stuff has to be addressed. But the, the true test of this for me is this is showing that we failed in, in teaching people the kind of core tenets of what it means to be a Christian and the idea of like the, the idea of the theology behind Easter, right? Like that, that not even death or whatever. Uh, and then coming out of this, like there has to be like a revival mindset coming out of this. We cannot go back to this place of like, well, we're just going to do it all the same way. Again, pie in the sky, optimist view of my very specific church situation. But damn, like, we have to be able to kind of translate this kind of trauma into some kind of new theology for people and not just theology for clergy and academics, but theology that's actually in the pews so that when an article like this comes out, people can read it and, and be like, oh, I see what they're saying. Anyway, uh, rant over. But I, I, I think that there's, to me, it's like, I, I guess I have maybe a less negative view on it. <laughs> so don't, don't well, add me, Twitter. Uh, <laughs> no, I think that part of the... You know, part of what you're describing, I certainly, I've had, I've been in one church where this was different, but by the way, it was changed fundamentally by the experience of becoming a sanctuary church. It absolutely was this before that happened. It absolutely was all about meeting people's needs and just sort of like keeping them comfortable and, and assuaged while ignoring all this stuff. I mean, like there's this quote in here, he says, Howard Ross says that self-deception is contagious. Many congregations are a conspiracy of niceness, a community that lives under a covenant that says, I promise never to tell tell you the truth about yourself if you will do the same for me. 100%. That is true. And And it's because everybody is in the same sort of group, right? Like think about, you know, just think about all of the social things that, you all the social cues you set off when you walk into a church and you're not from a like middle or upper class wife nuclear family like you're breaking all of the communal rules those are the only rules that matter in most congregations do you fit this picture of what we all of the idol that we've created about ourselves it's not true about any of them but you have to fit that image or else you're not going to be welcome yeah. You know, I know I know a pastor who found out that like the uh, lead singer and lead guitarist of the Sunday morning praise band were having an affair with each other and he removed them from the band because you can't be leading worship while you're having an affair that they refuse to end. And that pastor got moved because the church revolted and they said, we don't care what they're doing. They sound good singing. Mm-hmm. So like, even there, they're breaking this like, this image and this idol of the white nuclear family. It's this, you know, that's the absolute encapsulation of that incredible Marcel Outhouse read line, heterosexuality makes queer and decent people out of us all. 
But the people didn't care as long as they kept the the fucking image up. As yeah. long as they kept the game going, they didn't care that they weren't really what they aspired to be. They just wanted that presentation and that performance. Well, and so yeah, I was going to say you you mentioned because you've mentioned white a couple times now, and it it had me thinking about. Uh, I reread some James Cone recently, and like it's pretty. You know, it's like I think you can read similar to an article like this. I think you can read something like James Cone and be like, oh. As a white person, this just this doesn't this doesn't include me, and it's not. It's like that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying like as a white people person, you actually have to like basically. It's this quote right here from Wilmon that I think is what I connected with. It's like worse than even death says baptism and is unsummoned life. Every time the church baptizes and enacts the countercultural word that my most pressing need is to have something more important to do with my life than my life. Um, and so I just I I made that connection just thinking about a lot of churches who are tr- who are doing trying to do anti racist work and you know creating book clubs uh, things like that and it's like this idea of like we're not actually creating people that buy into that we're not creating people that can read James Cone and see it as the challenge that it actually is for white people we're 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 doing the stuff that you're talking about which is creating I always say creating tr- uh, experience or, or preference that we call tradition. Uh, so it's like creating this thing of like, well, we don't do that here. It's like, well, but that doesn't mean we can't do it here. Like there's very few things that most churches do that are actually like, you know, traditionally like Orthodox Christian. Most of it is, falls under preference, like whether it's high church, low church, whatever it is. So anyway, I, I just, that that line just struck out to me. I, I did not actually read it when I was, or it didn't put a, affect me when I read it this first time, but just scrolling through, just seeing, thinking of the idea of like teaching baptism as a countercultural thing, as opposed to just the thing where the family shows up and gets picture taken. Um, that That's, I mean, that's, there's, there's the root of the problem for me is that we just, we just don't see anything in the church like that. So. Well, but let me, let me go into another quote that I think is helpful. And then I want to give some um, real world examples that uh, I pulled together for us. I've told, this is Willeman speaking, I've told seminarians that ministry defined as meeting people's needs is dangerous in a, in a society where the more affluent and privileged among us have solved with a credit card most of our biblical needs like food, housing, and clothing. So we move on to assuaging personal needs the Bible doesn't give a rip about, meaning making, a purpose-driven life, balance, freedom from anxiety, or a, per, or a sense of personal well-being. Fulfillment of desire becomes elevated to the level of need, and need gets jacked up to the status of a right. Because my desires are a bottomless pit, no wonder so many clergy become exhausted rushing about in service to my right to be cared for. I'm sure this is one of the paragraphs that set people off, but it's 100% true. Okay. Like, and I, and let me give an example of what, what it looks like, because most of the time, I mean, if, you know, seminarians who are being formed right now to have, you know, to preach about the Bible, to really dig into scripture, that is not the common knowledge that the generation above us and the one above that, like my dad's generation, was brought up in the church with. They don't preach about the Bible. And yeah. when you do, you know, and when you do hear it, they try their best to shoehorn in these themes. What does this say about your own life? Well, when it's Jesus talking about taking up your cross or sending out the disciples with nothing but, you know, the shoes on their feet and no food, like that has absolutely no relevance to the people in the pew's life if there is no bigger communal justice thing going on in that group. So instead, here, let, let me just hit you with some, um, <laughs> some sermon. Can I say headlines. one thing about that real quick though? Yeah, yeah um, go ahead. I, I do think that, I think the freedom for anxiety part is, 
that's like that's that's a moment during the in this article where I think that two well-off established old white guys telling other people that freedom from anxiety is a thing. Like I think that's where I, I think it's possible to it's not a, a stretch to misread that as kind of being a little bit clueless because I think that there is people there are people out there who like the idea of the church being able to help them. Um, I mean, they're not, it's, it goes back to your counseling thing, but I think, I think that's one of those places where I was just like, eh, I don't know, Will. Anyway, go on with your thing. So. Well, you know what though? Let me, someone came, someone told me recently that they really struggled with anxiety and they needed to name it as like a personal problem for them before God, because Jesus says in the Bible that worrying about things is a sin. Mm. And guess who told them that? A biblical counselor. Mm. Okay, so they, here's a person who's being told anxiety is a sin, all right? And they think, and they're also being told that the answer to that, to solving that anxiety is going to fucking church. Yeah. I mean, so that to me, again, who gives a shit what they intended in it? Like when I read stuff like that, I hear in my head things I've heard from people that they've learned in church that they shouldn't be anxious as Christians. Yeah. And that when they do, they're sinning. But here's the reality for me. If I don't take pills every day, then my brain tells me, you know, convinces, spends most of the day trying to convince me that, you know, I'm going to get divorced. My children are going to die horribly. And like my, you know, I'm going to commit suicide. Like that, if I don't take pills, that's just what my brain will naturally do. Right. And And there's nothing about a worship service that's going to solve that. But people are being told by their pastors that it can yeah, and I, I guess I just want to make sure that I think that there is a. I just, I, I just sense a. I, I sense a little bit of a like. I don't know. That that was one of the ones where I was just like, I don't know. I, and I think it's similar to the one where they talk about they're teaching too much about Sabbath and self care. It's like, I don't know. That that might be yeah, that 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 quote I hated. I didn't yeah. like that quote about uh, seminarians being obsessed with Sabbath. Well, it's, it's because they're all being worked to death. Yeah, they're being literally being chewed up and spit out. So anyway, I just think that there is. I wanted to just even lift that up. So let, let's get to the examples. I want to hear. Uh, I want to hear what the what the uh, church leaders are are putting out there for us. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I, I think your point is well taken. That to the online audience and a younger audience, that can come off as like, oh, well, like as a dig at therapy or something. But the reality is, on the ground, like I think some of the folks I talked to this article about that are my age, they just don't know how fucking bleak the reality of the church is right now on the ground, mainly because, sorry, young people, they don't go. (laughs) Or they're in those fancy PhD programs. Uh. Well, it's not just that, but it's like, all right, well, if, you know, everybody who wants to defend this article, why don't you go to church? Oh, is it because it sucks? Oh, well, why? <laughs> anyway, just... Just put it out um, there, guys. <laughs> yeah. I, okay, so here's some, uh, here's some summaries of recent sermons at two of the largest United Methodist churches in the United States of America. I will um, not name them. Grace means it's okay that you're not okay. Nothing is more important than to maintain a life of purpose in the midst of painful adversity. Mm. If he overcame the grave, he can help us overcome our circumstances. <laughs> when we know we belong, we can start to believe. Are you an influencer? Pastor X <laughs> reminded us in worship this week that God calls us to use our influence to live lives that bring out the best in the world around us. 
Check out this first sermon in our current sermon series, Influencers. The future of faith is in the followers. Did you love the movie Onward as much as we did? Well, if you did, you're in for a treat. (laughs) Pastor X is going to be preaching about it this weekend. And if you didn't enjoy it as much, we promise you'll still get something amazing out of his message. Um, I like that one. one that more. covers all the bases right there. It's like, did yep. you love the movie Onward? Well then, oh, if you didn't, still come. <laughs> we know what the kid's like. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I'm broken too. A gospel is an announcement of something that has happened in history. This is actually a Timothy Keller tweet. I'll just tell you what it is. A gospel is an announcement of something that has happened in history. Something that's <laughs> been done for you that changes your status forever. Hmm. That's like just like fundamentally wrong, but okay. Anyways, keep going. Well, but here's another great, perfect encapsulation of this from Timothy Keller. When life is going smoothly and our truest heart treasures seem safe, our truest heart treasures, whatever the fuck that means, it does not occur to us to pray. Even there, he's saying, you need to be suffering to get something out of this church service. Like that's what I take Willeman to be naming when he talks about like pastors encouraging people to lick their wounds. Every single service in a lot of these evangelical churches or a lot of these like mainline big, big churches is about like, you know, convincing people that they're broken pieces of shit and then like having them like, you know, emotionally manipulating them into having an orgasm during like the bridge of the like 60th praise chorus of the, of the, of the service and then coming up and rededicating their lives to Christ. Like there's probably probably an episode title in that right there. Just putting it out there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. But here's one from, uh, you know, somebody that a lot of people really like that's our age. Um, and all that stuff you get defensive about, you can stop. None of it matters in any spiritually significant way. You don't really need the approval of your family. You don't need that upgrade you think will make you happy. Your feelings of superiority over others, you don't need it. Your victim story you tell and retell, you don't need it. Like, hmm. sorry, but that's by Nadia Bolz Weber. She's uh-huh. not doing anything different. Yeah. Well, I mean, and and a lot of this is because it it's it's in that has that influencer mindset or that idea yes. of like they're they they I don't want to say they've given up on the church, but it feels like sometimes these people have given up on the church and instead they're doing the Rob Bell thing, where I'm going to try to get myself an Oprah show. Um, and so it becomes this watered down thing that's actually never going to help because it doesn't actually get into that radical nature of Christianity that we were talking about before. Well, and let me give you a couple of quotes from one of my favorite um, <laughs> examples of of what it looks like for when pastors who do this sort of individual, privatized, working on yourself, like basically God is here to make you a better person. Mm. Like I think um, Willowman actually has this great uh, quote in here about... Um, yeah. Of all the ministerial practices, pastoral care may be the most corrupted by the modern North American psychological culture's promise of self-control. People are encouraged to believe that the purpose of being born is to be free to self-construct your life as you please. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the burden of self-fabrication becomes unbearable. So, I mean, 100%, that is exactly what most sermons these days in big and little churches are about. How can the gospel help you be a more self-controlled person? How can it help you be a more successful person? And to get to an example of that, Adam Hamilton wrote a book about Moses and his lessons for leadership. (laughs) 
<laughs> and um, yes, comes with some incredible quotes. Jethro becomes the first management consultant in human history. And he gives the advice to Moses, every great management consultant is given to every leader. And that is, you've got to delegate. <laughs> I wish I had a like good Casey Kasem impersonation. Um, the leaders who change the world are the people who refuse to give up. They listen, they learn, they're humble. They try not to get overwhelmed by the opposition, but they keep going. <laughs> yeah, but they never actually get over the, to the, the promised land. But let, that's just, let's not figure into that part of the story. But anyway, keep going. Right, exactly. <laughs> In your rearview mirror, it says objects are closer than they appear. But when it comes to our fear, objects appear bigger than they really are. Oh my God. I wonder if he's like talking about um, you know, the Egyptian army and during... <laughs> Yeah, I, this is this is just so bad, and this is where too, where like sometimes when mainline people start to try to like shit on um, evangelical, charismatic, other kind of like big box churches, like guess what? We're doing this too. We're doing this yes. just in, in, in yes. almost the exact same way. It's just packaged in a way that you feel comfortable. You you get to buy it at Cokesbury, not Lifeway, uh, and you feel better about it. So anyway, whatever. Um, I, I will say just because we're talking about books. Shout out to Will Willimon for writing a book about universal salvation when he was a bishop of North Alabama. I always appreciated that. And I like that book. So it's called Who Will Be Saved? So anyway. Nice. Yeah. So I guess that, you know, to me, how long are we here, Brian? Uh, over an hour. So we probably got to, we don't need to we do need a fight corner though, because I think the fight corner is going to come at us. So we'll just be at the Chili's parking lot waiting for people. But uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're almost done, I think. You know what, though? Let me just... All right. Like, now I'm going to get personal here as a pastor. Let me just describe the last year of my life to people on this podcast and like reiterate one more time before I get into this that the point of this is not... The point of the article as like, whoever cares, it's not that all, pastor, all pastoral care is bad. Pastors should never be caring for people. Yeah. That's not it. Yeah. The reality is the pastoral care of like the culture of that in the white mainline church is completely broken. Yes. And it's completely broken because it lacks a material analysis. It's completely broken because of, you know, the links between like the Methodist itinerant system and all these other different things. But I think we told a story a while back where a friend of CJ's who was like trying to, um, make their church opening and affirming mm. was sent to a different church by their DS. And the reason that they were given for why they were being moved is if people are unhappy, you're not doing your job. <laughs> yep. So let me just give you a like personal the example, Moses example what that looks like. That's just, yeah. That just plays <laughs> the Moses example. <laughs> exactly. In the last year, you know, I, first of all, I've dealt with like, all the COVID stuff, we can get into that. But I'm not even going to start there. I'll start with like the killing, the murder of Anthony Thompson Jr. by police in Knoxville in March. When I was out protesting for that, for justice for Anthony Thompson Jr. and his family, you know, I gotten made it through COVID with this congregation of older folks. No one had gotten sick because of church. That was the main goal. There were long periods of shutdown felt like I had built all this trust with these people by doing pastoral care for them during a pandemic. Let me be very clear, like what I was doing. It was, you know, guiding them, caring for them through a pandemic. And then came this racial justice issue. And 
suddenly people were writing letters to my boss saying, we need this person gone now. People were... They stopped coming. They started making threats about if I wasn't going to be moved, then you know they would stop contributing to the church. Every pastor has heard that a billion times. Who really cares? But they also just started like saying that, predicting that God would like remove me from the pulpit, even if the church wouldn't. You know, not only were people like calling for me to be removed, calling my supervisor and saying, we need this person out of here. They were also making these like divine predictions that God would remove me, even if the church didn't, which I have no clue what that would look like. Yeah. But then at the same time, my spouse missed two weeks in a row because one week she was out of town for work and the second week she wasn't feeling well. Well, that made people angry. And so they said, what's going on with your spouse? Does she not support what you're doing? Like, why is she not here? And then, you know, she's really had a bunch of problems this entire time because... Even going back to last year, when y'all introduced yourselves to the congregation, she was wearing a shirt that didn't have sleeves on it. And, yes. you know, her breasts are too big and like apparent in worship. And also... Um, worship, sorry. sorry. That's just so... Keep going. Sorry. Yeah. I, I didn't also, expect to make that turn. <laughs> yeah. And also she posted a picture of herself in, at the beach a couple weeks ago. And people thought that that was inappropriate because they shouldn't see pictures of the pastor's wife in a swimsuit. One of my like first few sermons at the church, uh, I talked about bathing my son in a sermon. And a bunch of the older folks in the congregation decided that that meant I wasn't a godly head of the household because bathing your child is women's work. Mm -hmm. And so a rumor began circulating through town that I was gay and my marriage was a front to like help me continue to be in ministry all because I bathed my child. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of shit that pastors are dealing with every single fucking day in churches. Okay. And we're told by our bosses that the antidote is to get people to like you. And then at the same time, that's just for like, you know, small dying churches, big churches are also reaching people and growing because they're selling the same message. Come here and we will like... Have no know, expectation we'll make, for you. Yeah, we'll talk to you about like, you know, if you're a guy, how watching porn is bad or if you're, you know, like we'll tell you how to control your life with the gospel, how God wants you to have it all. Like it's basically, it's even in mainline churches, it's like thinly veiled prosperity gospel. Yeah, yeah. So I think that... <laughs> All of that comes from the way that the church actively warps the role of pastors. And I don't just mean, you know, bishops or boards of ordained ministry. I mean, congregations too. Yeah. And until we can like have a real conversation about that, like, I don't know what else to say, except it really, really sucks to be a pastor in those settings, but it's the only way to sur to survive them because the opinion of this group of people is tied directly to your housing, to your finances, to your healthcare. And, you know, maybe the, maybe the reality is it shouldn't be that way. But I guess, you know, I just wanted to come in, I wanted to come on and give people like some inside baseball into what it really looks like for a culture of pastoral care to become totally warped by the narcissism of a group of people.
Yeah. And I think it's I think it's just a helpful unpacking, whether you agree with it or not, that you just can't do on Twitter. And and I think that that's actually something that's useful uh, lately is to maybe get outside of the 280 characters and and uh, and talk about things a little bit more. So, you know, this is I think this is the epitome of all takes being revealed. Well, before we go, I want to say one more thing. Sorry, okay. I'm just on my bullshit with this, but <laughs> I got to go pick up I, my wife. So <laughs> we got we to gotta turn this, we got to land this plane. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to land it. One of the things that people are saying is like, what is an alternative? What's an alternative? Yeah. I preached about what my definition of an alternative would be a little while back. It's that, you know, being in community and being a Christian has absolutely nothing to do with how you feel. <laughs> and that's like, because I think right now, most most of us, especially folks who are ex-evangelical or who are doing deconstructing, have been told over and over and over again that the way you feel in church is like the most important thing about your relationship with God. And when you don't feel good, you need to rededicate or you need to fix something. And then when you feel good again, everything's good. And I see white churches responding to the George Floyd murder, the Black Lives Matter movement, the murder of Anthony Thompson Jr. in my own community by saying... You know, hearing about this racism makes me feel bad. So what can I do to feel good? And what they do is like, you know, for the high schoolers at the school that Anthony Thompson Jr. went to, a church bought them Chick-fil-A for lunch. And then they had done something that made them feel good so they could move on. Racism was defeated. But what collective movement shows us is that what discipleship looks like and what what actually being a Christian looks like is showing up and working with others in solidarity and mutual aid to collectively get free. And in the midst of that work, whether you do it on a day when, you know, I think this is the point they're trying to make about woundedness is that the church is trying to say, you got to work on yourself and then you can work on others. Like when you get yourself right, then you can go and make Africa right. That is basically the whole missional theology of the mainline church. Yep. <laughs> get yourself right, and then we're going to go fix other people because we figured out our own selves. What the work of collective liberation is, is that a group of people who are being killed, an earth that is dying, have got to come together. And in the midst of that yeah. like hurt and pain, keep each other safe and fight to win victories and on you, behalf of each other. And that you are included in that group of people that is getting killed. Whether you are driving a nice car or living in a nice... You are also being destroyed by the system. And that's a major part of the Bruce uh, Rogers Vaughn book as well. And only in that collective struggle where we are taking part of something that's bigger than, us, than ourselves, will these, <laughs> these like traumas and these griefs and mm. all of them... Well, they only then will like the real conditions of them and the real like contributing factors of them be like openly revealed to us in a material way. And only then will we like truly be able to process them and move on from them. And I don't think that comes from like your one-on-one relationship with a pastor. I think it comes from work in a collective, as a collective body. And to me, the biggest concern here of the backlash to this article is that, you know, I still think a lot of young white people need to unpack the role that their hesitancy to get involved in collective movements because the hardest people when I was working in, you know, the, the sanctuary church in Charlottesville, 
the most faithful people to it were some of the older folks. And it was really hard to get young people to commit to it. It's because young people have so much put on them mm. that the, the young people who were really, really committed to it had to sacrifice a lot to do it. Yep. But also, so on some, in many ways, I'm very empathetic to it. But at the same time, there is no other way for us all to get free. And so I guess I just, you know, that would be the beginning blocks of what I would talk about as an alternative that, you know, that your body, your brain may always be fighting against you, you know, and you need drugs or a really expensive medical care to, to deal with it. Your emotions, you're shaped by the people that came before you and who shaped you. And we're all going to have to deal with that for the rest of our lives. But when we find a place and choose a community and choose a struggle, then we, in the midst of that uh, collective, I think that's how we find liberation from all these things that, that the church has just completely failed to offer mm. in the last 60 to 75 years. I have nothing to add. That's it. We, wheels on the runway. <laughs> you may now unfasten your seatbelts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Turn on your cell phones. It's all, good. It's all fine now. <laughs> okay. The last thing though is that Adam Hamilton on his uh, recently asked um, the, his congregation to weigh in on whether or not he should host a cruise that traces the ministry of Paul through the, Paul through the Mediterranean, which uh, Will Williman has also done. Almost every bishop of the United Methodist Church has done one of those cruises. So congrats to Adam Hamilton um, for reaching that level of grift. <laughs> there it um, is. <laughs> there's a mini fight corner. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, this was awesome. <laughs> Uh, like and subscribe. <laughs> <laughs>